What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this episode, we have James Neist. Now, James is the cinematographer for the latest installment in the Haunting Anthology by Mike Flanagan, and we sit down to discuss how he tackled the series. If you remember The Haunting of Hill House, there was the episode where they had the one camera move throughout. Well, this episode, they decided to light with candles. Now, with all that said, here's my interview with James. I've heard cinematographers in the past talk about the difficulty of directors who want things to go to black and it be really dark, but then the issue of trying to make sure that you can still see <laughs> what's important. Is this something you've ever struggled with? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And, you know, and I came from commercials too. So like, you know, we would make things look really nice and then the client would go away and the client would brighten everything up just normally. And up. so it's a constant battle. Usually, you know, the cinematographer and the director want to make things really dark. And then the producer's like, I want to see my actor's faces that I'm paying. And so there's a constant battle on set with that to try to find the, the happy medium, especially in mic stuff. So we're, we're always um, assessing to taste how much to put back there um, with digital. You can always kind of crush it down a little bit. So, um, what I and I think other guys tend to do is we create LUTs. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with what those are. They're mm-hmm. basically um, camera settings for the output, but in RAW, all the material is there, but we create a LUT, it's called a lookup table that has color and contrast and white balance, all that kind of thing. But it sort of steps on everything so that as we're watching it on set, we can everything looks kind of dark, but then we can look, go back and see that there's still detail there to to whatever degree we're dialing in. So later on in post, if we need to pull that out or even crush it, we can. We have great tools now with power windows in the in the grade, you know. Um, I, I really like making things dark. Um, I took the show over halfway through and it was a bit brighter in the first few episodes. Um, luckily, that was a big discussion Mike and I had. It's like, all right, well, how do I make this change? Do we just jump off the cliff or do I need to transition either through an episode or through a couple episodes? But there was only five episodes left, so we kind of just started doing it. The lights used to be more frontal. Now they bring them around a little bit for more contrast, more fall off, a little bit more darkness to sort of hint at the the, the gravity of what's going on in the, in, the, in the story. When the Netflix reached out to me, they were like, oh, yeah, and there's a really cool experimental episode. But then they, they were like, but we're all under NDA, so we can't tell you what the episode is. So I'm assuming it's the black and white episode because there's a lot of candlelit scenes. Yeah, we, we did a few um, scenes lit only by candles. So how did um, you do that? Like, how did you tackle that as a cinematographer? It's funny. It happens to me a lot. You know, I read a lot of scripts and the lights go out. It's like, oh, <laughs> you know, and there's no on a moonless night. The lights go out. So it's like, how do I create some sort of motivated light? Luckily, now our cameras are pretty sensitive um, without a TV format, if you will and not necessarily a 60 foot screen. So the grain isn't necessarily an issue. So we bumped the camera up just a little bit. They have candles that are double and triple wick, hmm. uh, which burn a, bun- a bit brighter. And that's something that we'll always test to see um, how bright they are and what our settings are and stuff like that. But we just kind of embrace the darkness and strategically place candles. I tend to like to try to light through windows and stuff like that, which can be problematic because it'll light- make the window look bright but it gives the actors freedom to roam. We don't have a whole lot of equipment on the actual set. The idea is to sort of add any motion picture lighting from the same direction and quality 
as the candles would come from and even give them a little life. So we just kind of try to augment the real candles if necessary, like just get a little bit in their eyes or whatever. Now, I worked on one set where we had candles uh, as a sound person, and it was really hot by the end of the shoot because everything was heating up. Was it hot on the set for you? Um, not too much. You know, the sets were huge, so there was a lot of airflow. We did have AC um, that ran periodically. Also, today with all the LEDs, you know, I remember we'd have six or seven big tungsten units on a set, and everybody would be sweating, and it would be basically a Petri dish. And it's not that way anymore with 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 um, LEDs. Things are much cooler, much more comfortable, um, and much more adjustable. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of times we just run them on our iPad. I'll dim that down, make that bluer. Um, so it wasn't too hot. Now I wasn't an actor in this 1600s um, wardrobe that was. You know, I, I think some of those dresses probably weighed 20 or 30 pounds, and then all the undergarments that go with it. I might not be the person to ask about it. <laughs> Oftentimes, you know, we're wearing sweaters on set because the AC and they're big spaces. And I'm always looking for sweat on actors. And yeah. I'm always like asking makeup to sort of dampen them down. It's kind of a giveaway, unless we want them to look sweaty. Oh, now, what were the influences visually for the series that you guys sort of used for inspiration? Mike always said, if you have any questions, look back at season one of The Haunting of Hill House. That was always sort of the roadmap. Um, to tag up on. For the black and white series, I looked at a lot of different stuff. One thing that we talked a little bit about was the lighthouse. And to be quite honest, those were all just sort of inspirations, but it found its own sensibilities and, and its own level um, just in the locations and in the sets. Um, they kind of dictate, you know, what the, what the look will be. I did create some LUTs that were um, pretty heavy. So the blacks went really, really heavy black. We back those off a little bit in post, uh, but it's always nice to know that it's there and we can just kind of decrease the contrast a little bit, lift the blacks a kiss, bring the whites down. But a lot of old, I, I've done quite a few black and white stuff. I really like it. It's interesting because um, a lot of the things don't translate well in terms of color and um, things can, that have contrast in color when they're black and white, they could have the same tonality, you know, mm -hmm. like greens and reds look kind of the same. And especially the wardrobe and the faces that they kind of have their own little snap to them, you know. The hard part about that is a lot of it's satin and stuff, so it's really reflective. Yeah. So in a dark black and white environment, you'd see the sheen on the on the dress, which I was just always watching for, and um, we did pretty well with that. It sounds like you also did the color correction from what we were chatting about, or you participated. I did remotely um, on an iPad Pro, and then I begged and begged and begged and went into Light Iron is who did the um, the coloring and it's somebody who Mike has worked with in the past and Trevor Macy has worked with them. I did Hush there and I did um, the Bye Bye Man there as well. So I had a bit of rapport with our colorist. So we were at least able to to talk. Um, so every day I would log in to this Moxium app and it would have um, and I'd have to calibrate the iPad Pro for HDR, which was all a guess, pretty much. It, um, the iPad Pro doesn't have near the range that they're they're using these like $30,000, 1,000 nit Sony monitors in the color bays, but an iPad Pro is like, you know, pales in comparison to that. Um, we had to figure out the settings as best we could and just kind of wing it, pass, and I would go through and make notes per time code of little things that she'd go back and make it, and then I'd review. So it wasn't live grading, which was very tedious. Things definitely fell through the cracks. 
near the end, I begged to go in and actually see, scrub through as many episodes. I could have one day to scrub through all the episodes and look for anything glaring. And I was just like, oh my God, it looks so much different on, on these <laughs> monitors and a lot brighter, which I was really concerned about. Um, and so I fought to bring everything down a little bit, knowing that everyone's TV doesn't have the same drive as those monitors, but trying to find a happy medium by just guessing really from experience and not being able to put them side by side and evaluate. So I'm, I'm a little, like I said earlier, I'm a little worried about it. You know, I'm really particular about that stuff too. I mean, I know a lot of people, the average viewer is like, oh no, it looks great. But I'll be like, what is that? You know, or like that window looks too bright or hopefully the viewers are looking at the good stuff. It's funny that you said that uh, you look to the lighthouse because it reminded me more of the haunting, the original one from like- Oh, of course, of course. That was always a big um, in, uh, inspiration. But then the episode before that, there's uh, where the character is drowning. That reminded me of Tarkovsky's mirror. That visual effect kind of evolved, not only on set, but also um, in post. But Mike did not direct that episode. He directed um, the first episode, but then we had a series of directors afterwards. Um, that was directed by Ben and Yolanda, who is an Australian uh, directing team. Super nice people. And we kind of talked about it in a lot of different ways. We shot it in a way that we could do almost anything we wanted to in post. We had kind of simplified it. There was a discussion where the outside, the water would rise up through the outside of the windows um, was one of the ideas. I think that was the original idea in the script. Mm -hmm. And then as you know, through production, we're always trying to find ways to save time and, and money. And um, so that was sort of how it evolved on set was like, well, what's some other options we could do that aren't gonna take so much resources, um, namely time. So we decided to shoot her um, in her bed and then put green screen around here and then shoot some elements. Like we did the old trick with uh, mirrors and a pan with water and the light hitting the water and we kind of um, agitate it so we get some of those reflections. And so we shot a bunch of little elements like that in that space. And you'll see that shot's a lock off. So we, we, we kind of peppered the, the frame with uh, a few different water type elements. So it uses a reflection. And then in post, it, it just kind of found itself. I had a, a little bit of input. We did a bunch of tank work and <clears throat> I shot some just water elements and I asked uh, Post to add some of those water elements to the frame to try to help make it feel more authentic and smooth out the, the, the water message. You know, everything's kind of by committee these days. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of the level we found. And I think it adds to it. That's my background is I came from underwater photography. So anytime that we're doing that stuff, I really love it and dig into it and probably over amp on it <laughs> what would you say was the most challenging scene for you to shoot they built the lake out on a farm in bc and dug it out um we shot through winter and the lake had to be heated to 80 degrees or something per sag rules and it's you know zero degrees out um or even less so inherently there's a ton of steam. So I, I struggled a little bit with people getting lost in the steam. And so I ended up um, asking for a bunch of fans to, to line one side of the lake. And just before we roll, we just goose these huge fans and blow as much of the steam away as possible. And then shoot for as long as we can until it came back up again. But you know, it's the middle of the night, it's zero degrees out, it's you know threatening to snow and rain, and that proposed some of the biggest challenges. Plus, we had snow on set, it's supposed to be in spring, they brought trucks in and melted the snow, steam trucks, which turned into a big mud bog. 
So we had some difficulty moving around. We ended up just doing a lot of stuff on a techno crane because you could park it in one spot and, and arm all over and get, get shots in an efficient way, um, which was a great tool. We had a barge in the lake with a techno crane on it. Amelie, the, the young girl, she had to go in the water at night. And so those always present some challenges because there's safety issues, there's time issues. Um, you know, and it's so unfair. These people go in the water and then we're all standing around in giant loose down <laughs> jackets and heaters and we're like, can you go again? <laughs> I would say the exterior lake stuff with the steam and then some of the weather issues were the most challenging. Some of the tank work was because you could never have a big enough tank. I would say the the crew was amazing. They're always ready for up there, you know, and I'm in Toronto as well, compared to how we are down here in the States. Like they're always ready for rain or some kind of inclement weather. Everyone, all the camera crew has stuff to protect the camera. All the grips have petty booms ready to come in with overhangs to keep the rain out. Um, I know sound hates that, but you know, so I'm, I was just really continually impressed by how flexible and prepared the crew was up there. What would you say is the scene that uh, you're most proud of? For me, I would say I'm really proud of some of some of the lake stuff. It turned out really, really good. It was it was challenging. I like the kind of spooky aesthetic of it. We added some ground fog in the background in some places that I thought that it really made it. It helped the show lean towards the horror genre a little bit more. I really like the whole black and white uh, episode. One of the scenes I'm I'm really proud of is there's a scene with. Um, Kate and Katie, the sisters on the bed with a candle between them. And it's just one candle, one single wick candle. And um, and I thought it just had a really cool intimate vibe. Um, and it was sort of outside of the box of how everything else was done. And so I'm, I'm really proud of that. So I'm really proud of the really big stuff and also the really tiny stuff. I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone I interview. What would you say is your favorite Guilty Pleasure film to watch? Huh. Wow, there's a couple of different ones um, in different genres, but I would have to say Shawshank. It used to be on TBS around the clock. Yeah, <laughs> Shawshank or maybe Road to Perdition. Yeah, um, I really like, have a huge affinity for period pieces. I thought the camera and lighting work on, on those shows were amazing. The acting was incredible. On a lighter note, Blazing Saddles and History of the World, even Spaceballs. <laughs> I like all the Mel Brooks stuff, Caddyshack. Those are for just raw entertainment and just silly TV time. But the, um, the the visual shows is like Shawshank and Road to Perdition. And um, I also really like action films. And that's something that I hope to do is transition more into like Ronin, the Born Identity mm. stuff, John Wick. I love all that stuff, you know, and, and I'm trying to figure out a way to <laughs> make an action reel out of horror movies. <laughs> My other question is the marketing department kept saying like, just like the first season, there's hidden uh, surprises. Is there anything I should look out for? Because I'm going to rewatch it with my wife. There's um, So in the story, you see people die on Bly Manor, and their ghosts never leave until um, Danny kind of takes the responsibility for the, the Lady of the Lake ghost. Mm -hmm. So all the people who have died there are, are sprinkled throughout the show, hiding in corners and stuff like that. We played with it a bit on set with how much to light them, and then also in post, like how to either darken them or dig them out. Even in some of the marketing material, like if you look at the posters and stuff like that, there's there's like ghosts in the in the print. Sort of our biggest discussion is how far away to put them from camera, how bright. We would usually do a couple of versions, one with, one without the ghost, one making him brighter, one making them darker, yeah. time pending, just so that they have the options. And did you read the book before uh, going on set? 
I did read it, but not beforehand. I kind of read it in the process. It's pretty interesting um, how, and in, in a lot of Mike's work, it stems from um, books, mm -hmm. but even in other people's work, I'm always amazed at how the book is just sort of a blueprint, but the directors and writers really put their own spin on it and, and sort of change it a lot, you know? Well, that's what I appreciate about both series, right? They did such a good job of making it relevant to us nowadays, but respecting the material. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, um, and that, how they mine it for the, the really poignant bits mm -hmm. and, and, and express it in their own way. And um, it's a pretty fascinating process. Mike has another series that I'm hopefully gonna do. And I was working with him at prepping uh, for the show he's doing now, Midnight Mass. And I was uh, in the same office. So during the writer's room, you hear how these things get flushed out, you know, and sometimes there's heated battles and other times uh, everybody's on the same page. And it's just a really interesting dynamic to, to, to watch from a distance. Wow. I also have to say you worked on one of the horror films that I loved, which was Hush. Oh, yeah. It's so funny that movie got, has gotten so much reach continues to blow me away and it's actually how i got involved with mike flanagan oh yeah was he on that was that when it he was the director and writer oh wow he and his new wife kate who is a star wrote that together and it was sort of a showpiece of her coming out as an actress she'd been acting and stuff like that but it did so well and i think one of the reasons was that the deaf community really appreciated how authentic the sign language was yeah. and what a great representation um it was of their of their plight and it was also kind of fun in a thriller. And um, John Gallagher Jr., you know, he was kind of outside of his normal role. And uh, we shot that in the woods in Alabama all nights in like 20 days. Oof. Nights are the worst. <laughs> the worst to shoot. I like splits because I'm not yeah. a morning person, but yeah. I'm a night person. So I'm, I'm happy to go to work at 10 and work till midnight. You know, that's not a big deal at all. Thank you so much for letting me interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I truly appreciate it. All right. Looking forward to your next work. Thank you. Thank you. That was my interview with James. I'd like to thank James for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Netflix for setting this up. And of course, this episode was cut by Evan Winch. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.